0: Last week on Our Common Salvation, we began to talk about ancient paths, soul care under the Old Covenant. And the entire last episode was spent examining parents under the Old Covenant. In this episode, we're going to take a look at wise men, scribes, and rabbis under the Old Covenant. Let's start with wise men. Well, from the early on in the Hebrew tradition, there were three distinguished categories of professionals in the Jewish faith. First, you had the priests. Second, you had the prophets. And third came the wise men. John McNeil, author of A History of the Cure of Souls, explains, quote, the wise men counseled their fellows of all ranks and callings on the principles of the good life and details of personal conduct, Wise men chiefly gave guidance to individuals. Unlike the prophets, they did not challenge their contemporaries on public issues, and few of them came to such prominence as to obtain lasting fame. End quote. This is true enough, but that doesn't mean that we don't know some of their names. First uh, Kings four thirty-one and first chronicles two six name Ethan the Ezrahite. Haman and Calcol and Darda and the sons of Mahol. Now, the reason we know these names is that they're set in relief against a name known to all of us, and that would be Solomon. So 1 Kings 4.31 says that Solomon was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, Haman, Calcol, Darda, and the sons of Mahol. These guys were the wise guys and Solomon is named as the wisest of the wise guys. Now much of Solomon's wisdom of course is on display in the book of Proverbs. But he wasn't the only inspired author to write wisdom. According to the book itself, Proverbs claims multiple authors. Proverbs 22:17 mentions the words of the wise toward the tail end of the Proverbs, we learn a couple of their names. In chapter 30, verse one, we read of the words of Agur. And then in Proverbs 31, verse one, it speaks of the words of Lemuel. So the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, which would include Job, portions of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, it's a massive portion of the Old Testament that was written by these wise guys. And then if you include the narrative portions of the Old Testament and the genealogies in which their names appear, what you discover is that much of the Bible, comprising four-fifths of the canon, is given over to matters related to soul care, to the faith's psychology, to soul wisdom. And these wise men were a part of this, a big part of it. Now next we have the scribes. The scribes, now who are these guys? Well, the scribes weren't the authors of the law, but its interpreters. And Samuel, 2 Samuel eight seventeen, makes passing mention of a gentleman named Sariah, who was secretary. Now, the word for secretary is the word for scribe. They are mentioned repeatedly in 2nd Samuel and in 1st and 2nd Kings, also in 2nd Chronicles. As to where they came from, it, it's hard to know with certainty, but if you remember those three categories of the Jewish professionals, namely priests, prophets, and wise men, it's probably the case that the scribes trace their pedigree back to the priests. Now far and away, the most well known, and in some sense the, the man considered the granddaddy of the scribal order was a man named Ezra. You may remember him from a book that bears his name. Ezra was both a priest and a scribe. And it has to be one of my favorite verses in the entire Old Testament. But in, but in uh, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, we get a peek under the hood of this man's life at what precisely made him tick. And here it is. Uh, Ezra chapter 7, starting at the tail end of verse 9. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra the priest had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Do you hear that? Do you want to be a counselor? Do you want to be a faithful soul care physician? Do that. Do what Ezra did with his life. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had, the priest had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra 7, 9 to 10. And that's the right order, too. He set his heart to study, do, and teach in that order, and repeat every day of your life, study, do, teach. That's a counselor. So Ezra was the headwaters of this class of men that did the personal ministry of the Word of God in the lives of the Jewish people over time they developed schools and those schools became the basis for the local synagogue and it was the scribes that held the seats of honor in those synagogues in those gatherings eventually the scribes came to compose commentaries on scripture called midrash mishnah and talmud by the time that we arrive at the first century a.d the scribes are now divided into liberal and conservative camps Uh, hillel was the west the, excuse me, the, the left wing, more progressive, and Shammai was the right wing, more conservative. Now, we know about how this goes, right? There's, there's always folks on the left and on the right of me because I'm the only one who's balanced around here. Um, and these guys talked about debating everything. Uh, nothing seemed to be off the table of consideration for these men. In a wonderful passage, actually, in his book, The History of the Cure of Souls, John McNeil writes the following, quote, they discussed the duration of twilight, the order in which to pour hot and cold water for the bath, the wearing of hairnets worn by a woman while bathing, fowl and cheese on the same table, the amount of 39 labors forbidden on the Sabbath, end quote. Now, this may seem persnickety to you and me, and indeed it was, but let's not forget, they are dealing with God's holy, authoritative, inerrant, necessary, and sufficient word. And they aren't simply content to allow Scripture to float leisurely above their heads in lofty theological categories, but they want to take the Bible and put its cookies on the bottom shelf. That's a noble task it's not simply these what these guys were after but it's but it's also wisdom how does knowledge apply to everyday life now did they go overboard i i think so so much so that jesus lampoons them for tithing out of their spice rack right but i wonder how well positioned as 21st american christians we really are to make such judgments I wish that Christian counselors knew Leviticus well enough to engage in a discussion as to whether or not it's offensive to weave three threads or sew two stitches on the Sabbath. (laughs) By the way, uh, Hillel said, go ahead, and Shammai said, don't you dare. Uh, So that's the scribes at their worst. Um, But at their best, they were Ezra-like. The good hand of their God was on them, for they set their hearts to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The scribes were an important part of the practitioners of Old Covenant counseling. One more group, and then we'll do some, some final comments on this category. Let's look at the rabbis. The rabbis, who were these guys? Well, the rabbis are perhaps the closest approximation to the modern-day counselor that we have in ancient Israel. The rabbis were one part parent, one part wise man, One part scribe, and one part discipler and teacher. The rabbis were the ultimate soul physicians. John McNeil refers to them as guides of conscience. It's a great phrase, guides of conscience. Many were unknown, but some achieved a measure of fame. Among them were the rabbi Gamaliel, who was the grandson of Hillel himself, also the tutor of the apostle Paul when he was still a Pharisee named Saul. Uh, Rabbis did their work in personal life-on-life life mode. They were well-known not only for a masterful grap, grasp of Old Testament Scripture, uh, but also for their understanding of the human heart and its motives. Rabbis would have students crawling all over them, especially in their houses. Uh, Rabbi uh, uh, Jose's hallowed statement and counsel to young peoples was, quote, cover thyself with the dust at their feet and drink in their words with thirst, end quote. The rabbis seem to uh, express extraordinary contempt for anything that we might file under the category of boundaries, you know, maintaining boundaries and so on. They made themselves available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, especially for those pupils who want to go the next step in their development. Now, let's, let's do some application here. The Jewish faith was obviously well-equipped with guides for the soul. When they were suffering or sinning, when they were depressed or anxious or addicted or angry, the Jews turned to their parents, their wise men, their scribes, and their rabbis. The Hebrew people understood that spiritual formation and soul care and counsel took time. They knew the personal problem sphere to be a sticky wicked, if there ever was one. It took patience, love, and most of all, biblically saturated minds and hearts and mouths and lives to carry on this kind of work. All of this took place under the old covenant. And what was the old covenant? Well, it was was summarized, of course, by keeping the law. And what's the message of the law? Well, my favorite counselor, the, the Puritan, John Owen, put it this way, The law is a beam of the holiness of God himself. What it speaks unto us, it speaks in the name and authority of God. The law knows neither mercy nor forgiveness. Do this and live, fail and die, is the constant immutable voice of the law. End quote. That's a good word from John Owen there. Because God's law, of course, is wonderful. It can do a great many things. God's law informs us of the rules. God's law shows us just how far short we fall of keeping those rules. And God's law even has a curbing and restraining effect to some degree, so that in view of its threatenings, we don't transgress further than our conscience allows. Those are good things. God's rules inform us of his standards. Again, the words of Owen are apt here, and I'd like to repeat them. The law is a beam. Picture the holiness of God like a sun in the Milky Way. The law is a beam of that sunlight, a beam of the holiness of God himself. What it speaks unto us, it speaks in the name and authority of God. The law knows neither mercy nor forgiveness. Do this and live, fail and die, is the constant immutable voice of the law. End quote. So, so mark this well. For 1,500 years, from the giving of the law till the dawning of the church, God's old covenant people did peerless soul care. And they did it without the cross without the cross of Jesus Christ. They they did their soul care without the empty tomb of our risen Lord. The Jews did soul care without the spirit of God as a permanent indwelling possession of his people. The people of the old covenant engaged in soul care with law that as wonderful as it is, at the end of the day, is simply brought with a message of condemnation and death. For as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3.19, Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. you imagine that any meeting you have with a soul care physician whether a parent or a wise man or a scribe or a rabbi under the old covenant essentially ends with a thud with the reality that i will not be justified in god's sight through the keeping of this law because ultimately through the keeping of this law comes the knowledge of my sin it holds up a mirror to the rebellion of my soul so what's the answer? The answer of course is in the next verse. Romans 3:22 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation to be received by His blood through faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that's the answer. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer. As spectacular as the models of Old Covenant counseling are, and they are spectacular, and as much as we can and should learn from every page and each and every practitioner of the Old Covenant in regards to counseling, it all simply amounts to so much good advice without the grace of God pulsing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is not simply good advice. The gospel is good news. If you want to hear a quick story on the difference between the difference between good advice and good news, here's a story that I learned from the inimitable Doug Wilson. Picture a math class of, let's say, um, freshman high school uh, algebra class toward the end of the term and uh, the math final is being given. All the students uh, shuffle in and get into their seats, and there's one student in particular that is absolutely nerve-wracked, uh, just feeling beside themselves with a sense, of just torturing themselves with a sense that they haven't studied enough, that they're not gonna be able to uh, pull this test off, and they start to sweat. And they're looking at the exam, and nothing's coming to mind. And their, you know, knee is bouncing, and their fingers are tapping, and the sweat is pouring, and it's obvious both to this student and the teacher who looks up at this student that something's wrong. So the teacher gets up from uh, his or her desk and approaches the this this uh, freshman shaking in their boots at this mid this uh, final exam, and the teacher leans over and says to the student. Uh, just uh, take a few breaths. Uh, you, remember your paradigms. Um, you know, if you need to get up and go into the uh, hallway and take a little walk and maybe uh, just clear your mind, uh, get a drink of water, so on, then come back in and try this. Um, well, what is that? <laughs> well, that's, that's good advice. It, it, that, that's what, what, a, what a loving teacher does. That, that is very good advice, actually, all, all of that. That's good advice. Now, do the scene over again. Uh, It's the end of the uh, semester. Students file in. The student takes his place in his seat, begins to get the exam, and his heart begins to race. The sweat begins to pour. The knee begins to bounce. The fingers begin to drum. He's freaking out. And the teacher looks up, locks eyes with him, realizes there's something wrong, begins to get up from his desk, and advances toward him. Except this time the teacher leans over and whispers into the students ear, ah, scoot over. I'm going to take the exam for you. (laughs) What is that? That is good news. That's good news. That's not just good advice. That's good news. And what's wonderful about that is how risky the story is. Doug Wilson is somebody who understands justification by faith. Uh, So did the Apostle Paul. And as the Apostle Paul outlines justification by faith, he says stunning things that really cause us to raise our eyebrows. For example, in Romans 4, 4 to 5, it says that to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Yet to the one who does not work, but who justifies The one who, uh, but, but to the one who does not work, but who trusts in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That is a stunning truth, and one that people might be inclined to twist or to use in a licentious way to their advantage. Because as I've heard pointed out about Doug Wilson's story, you might think that the teacher is gracious and so you're just going to fool around all semester because you're going to get to the exam and he's going to take it for you. Well, that's what Paul faced in Romans chapter six, verse one. Should we sin so that grace should abound? Well, friends, the answer to that question is absolutely not. May it never be. Perish the thought. And yet, when we preach the gospel, or we might say in this case, when we counsel the gospel with that kind of fullness and freeness, we are beginning to understand its scandal. The gospel is not safe, friends, because the gospel is not simply good advice. The gospel is good news. My favorite poetic couplet in the history of the church was penned by a pastor named John Barrage several hundred years ago, Barrage points the way forward for the new covenant with gospel-saturated biblical counseling this way. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. I'm going to say that one more time because I just, I just love saying it. Every, every syllable of that matters to me run john run the law demands but gives me neither feet nor hands better news the gospel brings it bids me fly and gives me wings now that's good news because we don't just counsel a theory as christians we counsel a person we counsel jesus christ amen well next week I wish we, I could say that we are going right to the feet of our esteemed Rabbi Jesus, but we're going to take another couple of weeks and do a little detour in the ancient world with the topic of the glory that was Greece, the grandeur that was Rome, secular soul care in the ancient world, roughly 400 BC to AD 300. Now, and of course, inside of this time, Christ came and lived and died and uh, was risen and ascended. But the context for the ministry of Jesus was Greco-Roman culture, and these guys did soul care. And so we want to set the table for the gospel, which we are going to do a deep dive into in the weeks following. But next week and the week after, the glory that was Greece, the grandeur that was Rome, secular soul care in the ancient world. Grace and peace.